From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Emily Tomlin. And I'm Michael Makowski. I'm not trying to turn students into political scientists. I'm trying to turn them into intelligent consumers. And this meant that I could both join an extraordinary political science department filled with exceptional scholars. One of the most gratifying things is to have students come up at the end of a class and say, I used to think politics was boring. This, 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 this is 1050 Bascom. Today on the podcast, we are happy to introduce a new faculty member to the UW-Madison Political Science Department, Professor Stephen Brook. Professor Brook's research interests include Islamist movements, non-state social service provision, and electoral mobilization in both authoritarian and democratic contexts. He is currently working on a book manuscript on the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood during the interwar period, and in January, his most recent book, Winning Hearts and Votes, Social Services, and the Islamist Political Advantage was published. Professor Brooks' research has been supported by the U.S. Institute of Peace, the Smith Richardson Foundation, the Project on Middle East Political Science, and the Graduate School at the University of Texas at Austin. Professor Brook holds a Ph.D. in government from the University of Texas at Austin, a master's degree from the University of Texas at Austin and George Mason University, and a bachelor's from James Madison University. Professor Brook, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah. Before we get into some of your research, we kind of want to introduce you to the broader UW community. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, Where did you grow up? So I was born in Central Virginia in the Shenandoah Valley, uh, but I moved to Florida, Central Florida, when I was about five. And so I spent kind of my formative years in a town called Ocala, which if you've ever done like a family road trip to Disney World or something, you've probably driven through Ocala. It's about an hour and a half north of Orlando, maybe 45 minutes south of Gainesville. Great. So what were you like? Paint us a picture of yourself maybe in high school. What were your interests? When did you know you wanted to be a college professor? (laughs) That's a great question. I mean, so I had some pretty esoteric interests in high school. And so, you know, I grew up, the town I grew up in was fairly small, and the high school I went to was fairly small. Mm -hmm. You know, I took advanced classes, but I never really thought of myself as being an academic. In fact, there was a period in high school where I was certain that uh, I wanted to... um, finish high school, and then go out to Montana to become a fishing guide. Oh, cool. Uh, And so, you know, I thought about that for a while and didn't necessarily work out. And um, then I went to college, and I was very interested in, you know, kind of art and architecture, and I thought I was going to do pre-med for a long time. Um, And eventually, just kind of through my career, uh, just kind of came to the realization that the thing that I was really most happy about was... Uh, was doing research. And so as I kind of pushed down that path a little bit more, um, I also realized that I also really enjoyed teaching and I enjoyed being in the classroom. I thought it was kind of a great opportunity and a great privilege. And so from there, it was really kind of just a natural extension to try and become an academic in a university setting. So where'd you go to college and how about grad school? So I went to college in James Madison University, uh, which is in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And it's actually pretty close to the town that I spent the first uh, five years or so of my life uh, in. And so, you know, when I was thinking about going back to college or going to college, one of the real attractive 
attractive things for me was being in a place that had seasons and mountains and kind of coming from Florida, we didn't really have either of those. And so James Madison was just really a wonderful place. And so there studied, you know, jumped around a little bit, as I mentioned, but eventually ended up with degrees in history and international affairs. And I spent uh, a semester studying in London, which was really wonderful and kind of part of this like global experience for me and really kind of prompted me to start thinking about political science as a discipline and also just kind of the experiences of places and people kind of outside the borders of the United States. Yeah. So how did you get into your field of research? Right now, a lot of what you look at is religion and politics in the Middle East. Sort of what was the first introduction to that topic for you? Mm. I was initially kind of very interested in art and architecture in the Islamic world. And that's mm. kind of how I was started my schooling at James Madison. And then, you know, I kind of did that for a while. And I started taking classes in the history department about that part of the world. I started taking classes in the political science department. Um, and I was a little bit kind of directionless. But obviously, you know, in my senior year, 9-11 happened. Mm. And so that was kind of a big formative influence on me. And so when, you know, 9 11 happened, you know, there was kind of a real emphasis on my part. You know, I wanted to understand this, but the, the way that I approached it was looking at this as kind of a question about terrorism and radicalism and violence. And so I spent a couple of years um, of my, my early kind of post-college career looking at the formation of terrorist groups, like the way that terrorist groups thought about strategy, their kind of intellectual and strategic genealogies, like how they learned from each other and how they learned from their own mistakes. And as I did that for a while, I, I, I found myself becoming kind of less and less convinced that the way to understand these questions or kind of the best way to understand these questions was by looking at these things as questions of terrorism and security. And so it kind of drew me like a little bit wider into kind of, you know, understanding the role of Islam and politics uh, away from questions, kind of divorcing it from questions about radicalism and violence and things like that, and trying to kind of understand it through the tools that we learn for thinking about ordinary politics, like things like elections or things like joining social movements, things like how you live your everyday life or the things that happen to you over the course of your day, where that might change the way you think about the role of Islam in politics or something like that. And so once I did that, there's kind of a whole greater array of kind of theoretical tools in political science and also in a lot of other disciplines that kind of give you the, 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 the framework by which you can understand those questions. Mm -hmm. So that happened when you were a senior in college. Yeah. At that point, you're still interested in art or you were already looking at politics and you sort of found something within that political framework that you wanted to focus on. Yeah. So I would say I'd kind of departed from art and architecture, um, and but I hadn't really fully kind of dived into studying the Islamic world because, frankly, mm -hmm. you know, at that time, prior to 9-11, James Madison was a smaller school. They didn't have an Arabic department, so I couldn't study the okay. language. And so I was, I was a little bit kind of directionless, honestly. And I remember when I was applying for jobs, it was I was just applying for anything. Um, it wasn't necessarily like this was the moment that I'm going to go study the Middle East. Um, but kind of as I kind of got, you know, successive opportunities to, to learn more about the Middle East and to study the language and all of that stuff, um, that it kind of just drew me in. I got very, very lucky in the sense that one of my first jobs out of college was to be a research assistant um, at a policy organization. And so I worked very closely 
with a scholar, and he had been kind of a scholar of, you know, the left in Latin America. Then he started working on immigration. Later, he started working on kind of Europe and Islam. And I kind of got wrapped up with him. And he was just a very important influence on my life in that he, you know, he was a he was a trained academic. He had a Ph.D. in political science. And he really kind of encouraged me to pursue my interests, and he cultivated them too. He kind of gave me research tasks that were bigger and bigger and that more and more closely approximated what political scientists as professional researchers would do. And it really kind of gave me the confidence to think to myself, this isn't just something I'm doing for somebody else. You know, this is something I could do for myself. And, you know, I've kind of belatedly recognized that that wasn't just an accident, uh, that he had really kind of saw in me potential to do this stuff. And it was with his kind of encouragement that I kind of realized I could be a college professor, like I could be a professional academic. And so that was a great experience. So from there, I thought looking at PhD programs would be a really kind of natural development. I wanted to kind of get out of the policy side, get more into the academic side. And so I had a great experience at the University of Texas, um, got some great help, had a great cohort, had a fantastic advisor, Jason Brownlee, uh, who really pushed me to develop my ideas and to kind of put the things that I had been interested in and that had intrigued me in the policy world in a framework that political scientists kind of who don't really study the Middle East or who don't look at kind of Islamist groups like the Muslim Brotherhood would find interesting and worthwhile. So I, I finished up at the University of Texas. I had a postdoc at the Harvard Kennedy School, which was really great for kind of developing my book idea. And then I worked at the University of Louisville for three years as a professor in political science. And from there, I came over to, to Madison. So maybe we'll talk a little bit more about teaching. Um, What are your favorite classes to teach? Do you have like a specific group of students that you really like to teach or like an age? What kind of setup do you like in the classroom? That kind of thing. I have to say I really enjoy teaching introductory classes at the undergraduate level. Um, I think it's really exciting for me to be in a classroom environment where you have a nice mix of students who really know what they want to do. You know, you have students that are political science majors from day one that have this intense interest in the topic, and they're just really excited to get into the classroom and learn more about it. Um, but you have other students, and I would, you know, characterize my experience as an undergrad in this way, who are just kind of genuine, genuinely interested in the topic, but really kind of unfamiliar with it. And so it's something that you could be interested in, uh, but it's also something that you might just be taking to, you know, fulfill a requirement or, you know, get something out of the way. And so I really like those students um, because I see it as a real opportunity to kind of get them excited about the things that I'm excited about. I want to kind of communicate to them that, you know, political science, it's not just about understanding kind of the horse race of American politics or something like that, but really that it can kind of give you tools that you can use to make sense of the world. And that can be really important for you if you're going into political science like me as a discipline, if you're going in, you want to go into government service or you want to go into kind of an international organization, if you want to go into business, if you want to go into law, if you just want to kind of be a well-rounded individual coming out of undergrad where you can write 
right? Where you can assess arguments, where you can make arguments, where you can understand what is strong evidence and what is weak evidence and cause and effect. And those types of questions, I think that that's, that's really valuable and it's exciting to kind of be on the ground floor of somebody's experience in college in that way. So as you're teaching some of these classes and someone with an academic focus on Islam and politics, you maybe encounter some undergrads coming into the classroom with some preconceived notions about what Islam is, what it looks like. How do you sort of engage with those types of ideas? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, frankly, look, like a lot of people's exposure to the Islamic world comes either through the news media, right, which covers violence and which covers terrorism and so there's kind of this unconscious association with uh you know the, with these kind of negative you know negative feelings and negative connotations um and i think you know there's also frankly you know a, a word like the muslim brotherhood or islamist i mean that 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 can kind of provoke some kind of scary thinking among um, among certain people you know my approach is that Look, like I, I have a great privilege to be an educator and to be in front of a class and to kind of help students kind of think through these things in a way that maximizes the tools of political science. And so we can ask ourselves, you know, when people kind of think about Islam and democracy, for instance, these things are incompatible. And, you know, we, we can kind of talk about the reasons why a lot of Islamic states kind of lag behind their counterparts in terms of the levels of kind of authoritarian rule in their country. And we could say, well, look, Indonesia is one of the world's largest democracies. It's also a majority Muslim country. And so if we think that there's a relationship between Islam and democracy, Indonesia is kind of a kind of an outlier case. We wouldn't expect to see this. We can also point to kind of you know repeated individual level attitudinal surveys that say most Muslims uh, in the Arab world and elsewhere are kind of quite supportive of democracy. They have very pro-democratic attitudes. And so then we can kind of flip the question around and say, well, if most Muslims are supportive of democracy as a system, then why is it that so few of these governments have accountable democratic systems? And that might direct our interest to looking at things like the resource curse or how they kind of build their regimes on access to natural resources rather than accountability and taxation to their citizens. We might look at the role of kind of powerful militaries in the region. We might look at the role of external actors like the United States that tend to prop up some of these authoritarian regimes and to kind of further, uh, you know, geopolitical objectives. And so it's a kind of a question of saying, you know, we all have these preconceptions and that's fine. You know, this is this is part of our, our product and our upbringing and our, our exposure to information. But one of the things we want to ask is, are these correct? We want to try and interrogate our own assumptions and be a little kind of reflexive when we think about these questions. And political science offers us, I think, a lot of interesting ways to do that. Yeah, I have quite a few questions about your research. But before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about your methodology. And I kind of need to ask, you are a speaker of Arabic, and you make quite large use of that in your research. But I noticed before you mentioned that James Madison didn't have an Arabic department at the time you were there. So as you left your entire undergraduate career, having not learned Arabic, sort of what were the steps that got you to a place where you can now use that mm. in your research? Yeah, that's a great question. And so, yes, James Madison didn't have an Arabic program when I was there. And so when I graduated, I moved to D.C. And D.C. was a great city in part because it has a lot of these opportunities to do professional and adult education. And so I was uh, basically 
working during the day, nine to five. And then in the night uh, in, or in the evenings, I would go to, um, I got my master's degree in history on certain days of the week. And then on other days of the week, I would go and take Arabic classes at the Middle East Institute. And so I just would go, you know, every few nights for a couple of years and just kind of learn Arabic as I went. Then when I decided to go and uh, start a graduate program in political science, I realized that I really had to kind of tool up on this experience. So the summer before I went to the University of Texas, I did a language program and then lived for a while in Beirut. And so that allowed me to kind of brush up my language and not just kind of the classroom aspect of it, but but also try and kind of convert it to, to, to the real world. And then Texas, one of the reasons why it was attractive to me is because it had a world-class Arabic program. And so some of the best Arabic professors in the world were there. People who literally wrote the textbook on learning Arabic uh, were at the University of Texas. And so I was taking classes in political science and research design and comparative democratization and political economy. But I was also taking classes in Arabic and Arabic for media and you know linguistics of the Quran. And so that was kind of brushing me up and my Arabic skills uh, as well. And by the time I kind of got to the point where I was doing field work, uh, my Arabic was uh, kind of at the point where I could actually start to use it in my research, which is very, very gratifying. You've mentioned some of your research interests and some terms that come up a bit are Islamism and political Islam. And I know that's not a term everyone's familiar with. So maybe could we start by having you give some definitions to these terms? Yeah, sure. So when I say Islamist or political Islam, I think it's important to kind of differentiate that from, you know, the way that really kind of the majority, or I'd say, I'd say many kind of people understand Islam as a religion. So we can think about, at an initial level, we can think about political Islam or Islamism as a political ideology, right? It's a way of not just thinking about your own relationship uh, to, you know, to the divine, but also about your kind of obligations to your society, but also really specifically that that this conception of the state or that the government should also have some role in enforcing those particular kind of religious dictates or ideas. And so, you know, we think about Islamist movements or Islamist groups as groups that agitate in the public sphere for a kind of a, a, a deeper or a stronger imposition of Islam or Islamic interpretations in public life and government. Particularly what you've looked at is the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. And you mentioned before, sometimes, and I think the Muslim Brotherhood is included in this, people have some scary thinking about these, this group in particular. It's been accused and called many things. How would you describe the Muslim Brotherhood? Could you maybe take us through your research on the emergence of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt? The Muslim Brotherhood is uh, an organization that was founded in Egypt in the 1920s, and it was founded by uh, a school teacher named Hassan al-Banna. And so one of the things that kind of animated Hassan al-Banna and his kind of um, his kind of emergence as a real kind of political actor is kind of twofold. You know, he made kind of this critique about the way that the Islamic world or the Arab world had really kind of been subjugated by the British and the French and kind of the entire colonial and imperial project. And he kind of linked that to the idea 
that the Islamic world itself had been weakened because it had gotten away from kind of traditional or proper understandings of Islam. So his movement was kind of simultaneously a, a religious revivalist movement, and we can see parallels to those all around the world in all types of religions. And it was also kind of an anti-imperialist movement. And likewise, we see those occurring kind of worldwide uh, in, in a variety of different contexts. And so he kind of formulated this idea of blending kind of popular activism or kind of we would think of as organizational politics about protests, about marching, about running in elections with a model of kind of individual level change and preaching. And so this idea was, you know, creating this organization that would transform individuals' sense of kind of what it means to be a Muslim in their own kind of forms of practice. Then they would transform their families and their communities and then kind of the country and then the entire world. And so this was kind of a really strong movement that spread with remarkable speed. And there's really no parallels to how quickly this organization spread in terms of social movements elsewhere. And so the book project that I'm currently working on is mainly a historical project going back to this interwar period and trying to explain what the Muslim Brotherhood was doing that kind of was a source of their success. And as myself, my co-author, uh, Neil Ketchley, who's a, who's a professor at the University of Oslo in Norway, the way that we're trying to ask the question is to say that in order to explain why the Muslim Brotherhood succeeded, we have to be able to explain why other similar movements who were active at the time failed. And so back in the historical record, you see there were lots of political movements that had the same ideal or similar ideological orientation or repertoire, drew from the same kind of membership or underlying social class, and they basically have winked out of the historical record. And so we want to try and compare the Muslim Brotherhood, what they were doing, where they were active, how they were using local infrastructures such as mosques or Sufi networks to try and understand the sources of their success. And so, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood has an interesting trajectory kind of beyond this period uh, because Hassan al-Banna, the founder of the organization, was assassinated as and the organization was then repressed very heavily by uh, by Egypt's first you know first president Gamal Abdel Nasser in the 1950s and the 1960s, and this period of the Muslim Brotherhood being repressed, put in prison, tortured, in some cases killed by this regime, was a, a it was a very traumatic one. And so you had a lot of reassessment going on inside the organization. And one of the questions that they tended to circulate around was like, what does this tell us about our approach, right? Under Hassan al-Banna, the approach had been kind of gradual, mostly peaceful about kind of changing people's minds, running in elections, occasionally participating in street politics, trying to kind of pressure decision makers through kind of like lobbying. And individuals kind of later when they were being uh, kind of subjected to this torture, they had a real kind of crisis and asking themselves, you know, this this shouldn't be happening to us, you know, and is it is it because our approach has failed? So this organization is under tremendous stress and they start to fracture and people start to leave this organization and lodge these critiques that say this approach of kind of gradual transformation, preaching, kind of political activism, that's kind of a joke. And in fact, the real solution for us is violence. And this strain, uh, it's eventually kind of put down inside the Muslim Brotherhood. The leaders of the organization write this famous kind of internal document that's called Preachers, Not Judges. 
and they set up this whole idea of it's not our role to sit in judgment of other people, right? Our role is to kind of preach to them and kind of perform peaceful actions to achieve what we want. But there were some people that rejected that, and you can follow that trend out, and eventually, you know, outside of the Muslim Brotherhood, that emerges into groups like al-Qaeda, and then to some extent later, the Islamic State, whereas the Muslim Brotherhood from that period in the 1960s and the 1970s shifts into being kind of a, a social movement, working in things like social service provision, which is what I studied, working in electoral politics and things like that. So it becomes kind of more aligned with just a a normal conservative party in the kind of Islamic context. So your most recent book, Winning Hearts and Votes, Social Services and the Islamist Political Advantage, published by Cornell University Press, that was published in January. Maybe you want to explain a little bit about what that book's about and how that fits into the research you're doing now, the differences between those two, the manuscript Mm -hmm. you're working on now and that book that was published. Yeah, so the the book Winning Hearts and Votes, um, that came out of my dissertation at the University of Texas. And so one of the the ways that that formed in my mind was I had been very frustrated for a long time of this weird situation where when we would talk about a group like the Muslim Brotherhood, one of the things that was kind of just a constant in, in the discussion was that the organization is popular because it provides a wide array of social services, including schools and hospitals and kindergartens, et cetera, et cetera, to to citizens and, I, and like that that makes sense right that's intuitive that that type of stuff would would be valuable but i thought i'd like to learn more about this so where can i go to read about these brotherhood hospitals where can i go to read about these brotherhood schools like what are they like inside how are they funded who uses them how expansive are they and I would look for that information, and it was just nowhere to be found. There was no kind of empirical backing to this claim that people were making and really kind of treating as truth. And so I talked to people, and they said, you know, yeah, the reason why this information doesn't exist is because it's impossible to get. You'll you'll never find it. The Brotherhood would never tell you this information. And I thought, well, you know, look, just because something is hard— doesn't mean we shouldn't try and do it. And I'm at a period in my career, I'm writing my dissertation where I had four years to research one topic. And I thought, if I can't do it for this period of time, I will never do it. So let's just see what happened. And I got very lucky in the sense that my fieldwork coincided with the Arab Spring. And so when I kind of landed in Egypt to do basically a year of fieldwork on this very topic, it was no longer an authoritarian state as it had been for decades under Hosni Mubarak and Anwar Sadat and Gamal Abdel Nasser. It was a transitioning democracy. And in fact, it was the Muslim Brotherhood who was winning the elections for parliament and for president. And so I could actually do some of this research. And so I wanted to ask kind of a couple interlinked questions. And so the first was just thinking about these brotherhood social services that had been really a feature of Egyptian kind of political and social life for for decades was to ask, why did they emerge under an authoritarian regime? So, you know, Anwar Sadat's government restricted political activity. Under Hosni Mubarak, it was the same, where opposition candidates for office were elected, rallies were broken up, voting was, you know, in some cases rigged um, subtly or very blatantly. But at the same time, the Brotherhood had free reign to operate hospitals and schools that provided care to millions of people. And so that was the first question I asked. The next question I tried to ask was, 
there are lots of organizations that provide social services in Egypt, right? The Brotherhood is just one, but there are religious and non-religious groups that do this. There are political parties that do this. And so the kind of follow-up question was, what was the Brotherhood doing that was so successful? Like, why are they so different than these other parties? What are they not doing? And then the final question was, what's the personal effect of this? So say if you were to go visit one of these brotherhood hospitals to get some medicine for your aging parent, or if you were to take one of your children there to get their broken arm fixed, what does that do to the way you think about the organization? How does that change the way you perceive them and their candidates for elected office? And so if they ask you to participate in a rally for them, or if they ask you to vote for them, does that make you more likely to do so? And if so, why? And so those were the three questions that I kind of used to structure the book. And I, you know, I use different kind of methodologies to answer each of those three questions. So when you talk about methodologies, can you maybe get into a little bit about what that looks like? You're in Egypt for one year, you said. What are you doing? Where are you looking? What kind of conversations are you having? Well, so the first question, it's a largely historical one. And so I was very interested in understanding where these social services, um, like what was the rationale behind their emergence? Like why did the regime allow this to happen? And so for that part of the work, uh, one of the things that I did was really it was kind of a history project. Mm -hmm. And so I spent a lot of time uh, going through Islamist periodicals from the 1970s. And I found a lot of information in there where the Brotherhood were talking very openly about why they were building hospitals and what their hospitals were going to look like and what the goals of their, their um, excuse me, their medical organization were. And I started going back through uh, Egyptian legal documents and finding where the Brotherhood had submitted information to the government to register these facilities. And so there was like a paper trail there I could follow up. And I started digging up the memoirs of people who were involved in this and reading them. Then I would go to people who had actually been there and collect some oral histories. And so that kind of painted this picture about what was going on in the 1970s. And the argument that I kind of make is that, you know, in the 1970s, the Egyptian government came under intense kind of economic stress. They tried to cut their subsidies for things like bread and fuel, and it provoked this tremendous rioting from the citizens, and it really kind of shook the government. And I kind of went back and I got some um, declassified assessments from the CIA around this period, and they were saying, like, it's unclear if we think Anwar Sadat's government is going to survive this. And so what I found is that, you know, the government is kind of put under this severe stress. Citizens are very frustrated. Things that, you know, they'd relied on for years have been suddenly taken away. And so the government realizes this and kind of encourages these groups like the Muslim Brotherhood and others to start providing where the state was pulling back. So the state can't provide health care, but they can encourage these other groups to start doing it. And so through mm -hmm. some historical evidence, I told that story. The second question about what the Brotherhood was doing that these other organizations weren't. It was kind of explicitly comparative, and so I would go and visit other social service providers. And one of the things that was very interesting to me is that, you know, I'd spent months going to these Muslim Brotherhood hospitals and talking to doctors and talking to administrators and nurses, uh, going over kind of balance sheets and just kind of seeing how these places were run. And there was just a really sharp difference between the scenes at these Muslim Brotherhood facilities and the facilities run by other organizations. And the main difference I found was that 
the Brotherhood was providing these social services really kind of as a business. They were running these things as a cash-in, cash-out basis. The balance sheets showed that the vast majority of people who use these facilities paid. And they didn't pay a lot, but they paid enough to keep these things running. Mm -hmm. And so they were very nice. They were run on kind of a market logic of trying to keep up with competitors. And the managers were very active in making sure employees were happy and monitoring their behavior. A lot of these other providers, they were run, their social services were run as charities. And so it was poorer people would go, right? They didn't really have better options and so there was no incentive to make these facilities nice and even if there was there was no money to pay the doctors or the nurses so they would never show up or they you know show up very late they have very rudimentary kind of um, facilities compared to the muslim brotherhood and so that was you know going to these facilities learning about how they're run inside there was also kind of a spatial component where i found the latitudes and longitudes of these facilities and kind of looked at their relationship to underlying census data and you know, identified how that they, you know, they tended to cluster in middle-class areas. And then finally, I wanted to answer this question about how it influenced the views of people who received these services. And so one of the things I did there was I had kind of a nationwide survey of Egyptians, and I kind of did a little experiment where half of those Egyptians Uh, I read them just a little bit of a prompt about the Muslim Brotherhood offering medical services. And so through this, I examined how their answers to subsequent questions about, you know, how would you vote for this organization or how likely would you be to vote for this organization or what are the traits you associate with these candidates? I saw how that changed for those people who had been read this little bit of extra information about the Brotherhood offering medical services. And I showed that kind of two things are happening, right? So compared to those who didn't get this little kind of vignette about the medical services, right, people who did were more likely to vote for the Muslim Brotherhood. And they also tended to affiliate the Brotherhood's candidates for elected office with traits like honesty and competence and modesty. And, you know, obviously, if you're a politician, at least theoretically, like those are good things right. for people to affiliate with you. And so we can kind of map on from that this, you know, intuition that maybe that's what's going on when people are going to these facilities and kind of experiencing this firsthand rather than just being kind of told this by, you know, this disembodied voice. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you were in Egypt during the Arab Spring. The media here in the U.S. portrayed the transition as permanent. Did you also see this transition as long-lasting, or did you see the unraveling that did happen as something like that was going to happen? Yeah, this is a great question. And I would say that my experience in Egypt, um, it kind of chastened me a little bit in the sense that it was really amazing just as a personal experience to be in this position where you had you know, were in the midst of a democratic transition. And it was it was very funny being in Egypt at this time because you had all of these, you know, high profile political scientists who'd written books about democratic transitions elsewhere in the world, like they're coming through Cairo and giving mm-hmm. talks and trying to learn about this. So that was very exciting. And I think, you know, the thing that was looming over this whole transition process was you had these three blocks. I mean, you could kind of call it that. And you had, you know, the the religious block, including kind of the Muslim Brotherhood. The other major political actor were uh, were the military, right, who's been historically very strong in Egypt and was kind of behind the scenes uh, managing the transition. And then you had uh, kind of the smaller but much kind of more activist and noisy leftist 
kind of agitators. And these were kind of like the kids of Tahrir Square that were really pushing for deep systematic change. We know from other cases that kind of the idea or at least the theory in kind of these moments of democratic transition where you have this kind of very powerful military and that can kind of play the role as the veto player, the, the, the lesson kind of tells us that what these different parties should do is they should kind of cut out their hardliners and the softliners on each side should make a deal. And so, you know, you had the Muslim Brotherhood in the streets and you had these kind of leftist activists in the streets. And so what happened was the Muslim Brotherhood effectively sidelined these, uh, you know, these leftist protesters who were pushing for deep systematic change and they cut a deal with the military, the Muslim Brotherhood did. And kind of the, the unspoken parameters of this deal were that the protests would stop, the political system would slightly open, the military's prerogatives wouldn't be challenged in terms of their position in the economy and their budget and things like that. Um, and in return, the military would kind of keep their hands off the transition. As long as they were kept happy, they wouldn't squash this process. And that is exactly what this transitions literature would tell us to do. You, mm -hmm. you sideline the hardliners and you create a pact. And so I was very, I would say, uh, optimistic about this, the, the, the trajectory of the transition when I saw that happening. I think as we went through particularly, you know, the, the winter of 2012, 2013, into the spring of 2013, you really kind of started to see this unravel. And it kind of unraveled in the sense that kind of a lot of the, you know, the Brotherhood made kind of a series of mistakes, partly their own doing, partly because, uh, because they were kind of being sabotaged by elements in the regime. Uh, but you also had just kind of increasing disillusionment of ordinary citizens with the democratic process. And the, mm -hmm. there was frustration over, you know, lack of services. There were fuel shortages, the prices, you know, the economy wasn't recovering. There was a lot of insecurity and criminality that was occurring. And kind of the Brotherhood was trying to kind of manipulate this very kind of unwieldy, uncooperative bureaucracy to take care of these things. And eventually it got to the point where opposition politicians who weren't frust who weren't happy with the Muslim Brotherhood but also couldn't really defeat them in elections went to the military and kind of urged the military to intervene. And so that culminated in July of 2013. And I remember in the run-up to this having conversations with some friends both on the Brotherhood side and on the opposition politician side and especially with the opposition politicians just kind of explaining to them that getting in bed with the military is not going to give them the outcome that they want. It's not going to be a reset of the electoral process. It's going to be a renewal of, of kind of the dictatorship. And kind of later, as I'm reflecting on this, you know, that really kind of calls the Brotherhood's approach into question there. And so in that those kind of critical moments in early 2011, the Brotherhood probably shouldn't have sidelined those leftist groups pushing for more systematic change and cut that deal with the military. They should have allied with them and they should have pushed the military until they were completely out of politics. And so that was kind of, for me, very interesting to think about just in terms of the way that I had this kind of preconceived notion about our, the you know, our theories of democratic transition, what's the proper way to sequence this, what does the literature tell us to do, versus watching this process break down in exactly the way that this would not predict. Yeah. That was very kind of educational for me. Uh, 
un, you know, it's a very clinical way to say it was an absolute disaster for the Egyptians. But for, from my point of view, watching that was, was, was kind of very surreal. So talking about these changes in Egyptian domestic politics, before we wrap up, I want to take a look at our politics as well and our foreign policy toward Egypt. Lately, the U.S. has been making news in its Middle East policy, and I'm just curious with regards to Egypt, if there's been any changes. Has there been a break with our relation with Egypt, or how would you characterize the current foreign policy of the U.S. with Egypt? I mean, so the thing to understand about Egypt is really, you know, since the 1970s, Egypt has been a really staunch kind of regional ally of the United States. And so initially this was kind of about using Egypt as kind of a replacement for Iran after the Iranian revolution. And then it was kind of based around the Egyptian-Israeli peace talks, the Camp David, Camp David Agreement. And so in some sense, the foreign policy that Trump is pursuing towards Egypt is not really much of a difference with prior administrations. And so there's a great deal of kind of bureaucratic support inside the United States government. And I think really particularly on the side of the military and the intelligence community, you have these pretty longstanding relationships with Egypt uh, to kind of look the other way on some of these questions about accountability, human rights violations, democracy in Egypt, because Egypt gives us other things that we like in terms of kind of geopolitical support, uh, intelligence cooperation and those things. And so you have kind of sporadic attempts by the United States to kind of push you know, the Egyptian government to open up or to be more democratic. And, you know, you can kind of trace these under the, you know, George W. Bush administration, the Obama administration um, prior to the Arab Spring. Uh, you don't see those under the Trump administration. Um, there's kind of a much more, I guess, transactional approach with Egypt uh, to the extent that there is a regional policy with the Trump administration. And it's kind of you know, in his kind of flowery way, kind of praising the Egyptian dictator, Abdel Fattah Sisi, who has kind of been an absolute disaster for human rights and democracy in Egypt. And so, you know, the Obama administration, I think, didn't really cover themselves in glory in the response to the military coup in 2013. Um, that being said, I think that at least there was some level of concern in the executive, uh, and particularly in Congress, also about highlighting the worst abuses of the regime to try and just basically put them on notice that the United States is watching, at least. Uh, under the Trump administration, there's, as far as I can tell, there's very little interest in putting any pressure on Egypt. And I don't know if you can draw this kind of causal relationship but I think you can see in Egypt right now that the speed and the depth of repression against all independent activism in Egypt, even the type that is barely mildly critical of the regime, has just accelerated to really kind of unbelievable levels. And so the situation in Egypt is really, really dire. Um, and you see kind of those increasing anger and frustration underneath the surface. But you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, um, it's really a lot for Egyptian citizens to go out into the streets and register public dissent in a place where the physical consequences of that can be so absolutely dire. 
Well, thank you, Professor Brooke, for being a part of 1050 Bascom. It was a great time talking to you and hearing about your research. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, pleasure. We'll do it again. Thank you.